As we spend the next few months taking a deep dive into our mission statement, you'll see it there on the front of your bulletin, uh, we're considering this month in January what it means to be a people, sorry, mission statement, to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. What does it mean to be a people? And in light of our identity as the people of God, this week we address our second core value. Last week it was word-centered. This week it's radically dependent. What does it mean to be a radically dependent people? So if you would turn actually to Exodus chapter 16, that's where we're going to be this morning and rehearsing the story, which you're likely familiar with. It's the story of the Israelites after they've freshly escaped from Egypt. They're on their way through the wilderness, through the desert to Mount Sinai. And the wilderness through which they're journeying has not been rated on Google or Priceline or anything as five-star. Okay, it's pretty bare. The combinations are kind of harsh. The food and drink are scarce. And when they're thirsty, the people get thirsty, and they what do they do? They complain. And then... God provides water. The people become hungry. They're starving. They're looking at all these animals they brought with them and saying, why can't we eat the animals, right? When they're hungry, they complain, and yet God provides food. And here's the story, Exodus 16, starting at verse 4. Then Yahweh, the Lord, said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh, against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And so begins, then, the daily provision of manna for 40 years. Every single day, God provides daily bread, just enough for that day for his people. And he doesn't give them the auction to stockpile. He doesn't tell them to build pantries and, you know, get a bunch of Tupperware and put all their manna in the pantry to store up. He doesn't give them the option of stockpiling for the purpose, verse 4 says, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. This same theme emerges in the scripture that Calvin just read for us 40 years later when Moses is reiterating the story, retelling the story to a new generation of Israelites. And in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8, he says this, You shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he may humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, so the purpose of their testing was, was kind of twofold. It was, it was not just to reveal what was in their hearts, which this verse clearly states, but also to train them, to train them to live the life of faith that is required if we're going to be people who live with God, who walk with God. 
And so in Exodus chapter 20, Moses says this to the people. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you. There's that word again, test. He's come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So God is testing them. I want to see what's in your heart, but not only see what's in your heart, train your hearts in a life of faith, living before me in fear that you may not sin. Sin. God is testing them to see if they will trust them, but also to help them learn how to trust him. He's testing not merely for obedience, but for faith. Because I think there's actually two different kinds of obedience. There's, there's one obedience which is grounded in fear. Right? I obey because I, I fear the consequences. I fear the repercussions. I fear punishment if I don't obey. And this, this kind of obedience often becomes a blind obedience, an unquestioning obedience, which says, look, I did what I was asked. I was just following orders. Right? We've heard that before. Okay? And we can just follow orders blindly out of fear. Or I think there's another kind of obedience that is contrasted to this, which is an obedience that's grounded in faith and comes from a place of relationship. God desires that his people, including you, including I, would obey him because we know and love and trust him. In the case of the manna, obedience meant trusting that God would provide. That he would provide tomorrow or today what he provided yesterday, what he said he was going to provide. We are tempted to disobey, and I think this is true in all of life. We're tempted to disobey. We're tempted to sin when we're worried or doubtful that God will provide. I think that's the root of so much of our sin and disobedience is we wonder, is God going to provide? We doubt and we live in non-trusting unfaith. Worried that perhaps tomorrow God will not give us what we need for the day. Let's go back to the story. Here's what happens. Some of the people immediately, immediately, day one, fail the test. And they keep some of the manna until the morning. They put it in their refrigerator or whatever. Even after, they didn't have refrigerators. Even after Moses had told them not to. So if you look at verse 20, it says, They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So right away they show what's in their hearts. They, they show the test that they don't trust God. And this is, this is a good moment for all of us to self-reflect, because honestly, what would you have done in the same situation? I mean, how many of us stockpile things till tomorrow? Does anybody go empty, empty pantry every night? No, we don't. It's time for us to self-reflect. How do we fare in our level of trust? And what is it about us that has so much trouble trusting in God's provision? That leaves us so discontent with the good gifts that God gives us? In verse 7, God says to the Israelites that they would see his glory. Moses says that they will see God's glory, which, which I take to mean that God's glory is on display when out of nowhere he provides food for over a million people. Like, hey, wake up in the morning, guess what? You're going to see my glory. My glory is coming in my provision out of nowhere for all of you, a million people. And guess what? I'm going to do it the next day too. 
And I'm going to do it the day after that. And the day after that. God is glorified in providing for his people. God is glorified in providing for his people. And when his people trust him for every single provision, he is glorified. That's what I think it means there when when Moses tells us that the Israelites would see his glory. They will see his provision and he will be glorified even as they go and gather and eat and partake of what God has graciously given them. Moses summarizes it in this way in verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is not up there yet. It says, Yahweh, the Lord fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you, and I love this, to do you good in the end. See, radical dependence means trusting that God's purpose in testing our faith, which, by the way, often comes with circumstances, places us in circumstances that we will not like. When God wants to test your faith, you probably won't like it at first, just FYI. So if you're in a place in life where you don't like it right now, guess what God might be doing? God's purpose is in testing our faith, which often places us in these circumstances we won't like, are meant to do us good in the end. We go to the New Testament here. The brother of Jesus, James, wrote this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the what? Testing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is working in his people through his provision, a trust in him that is a radical dependence. He does it through providing food for bread, and he does it also in this passage through providing rest. So we continue on in Exodus 16, and, and we read about later in the, the week, this first week of manna, what happens on the sixth day. God says that he'll provide enough on the sixth day, double what they need, to provide for them for the sixth and the seventh day, because the seventh day was a Sabbath. It was a day of rest. It was a day not to work, not to go out. They are to gather double on the sixth, not collect manna on the seventh. So can you guess what happened? Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people did what? They went out to gather. But they found no manna. And Yahweh said to Moses, how long, and I love how he points this at Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments, you all? How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh, the Lord, has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days, Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Now, what I want to note and what I want us to take note of in this brief story here is that two of God's greatest gifts of grace for his people intersect in a unique, important way, an important way here. The first is God's provision of food. God's provision of his physical sustenance, the things we need to live in the manna. But then secondly, God's provision of rest, the Sabbath, food and rest. So these are two of the basic necessities of life that we all need as humans, and they both serve 
to remind us and point out and define our limitations. We are not infinite creatures. We have needs. We need food. We need sleep. We must have both of them to survive. We depend on them. Our bodies require them. They are not optional. They're also symbols of our mortality and our utter dependence because we cannot provide them for ourselves on our own. As the story makes clear, God is the only one who can provide the Israelites with both of these necessities, and he's the only one that can provide us with these necessities, no matter how much we think all the food in our pantry came from our own hard work. It's all a gracious gift of a good God. We are radically dependent upon God when it comes to the basic necessities of our life. And in his grace, he's given them to us as gifts. Look at verse 29 where he says specifically, Yahweh, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's a gift. The Sabbath is a gift. The manna is a gift. And accepting food and rest as gifts is crucial to walking humbly with God. You see, the only other option, aside from accepting those gifts humbly, the only other option is rejecting these gifts and pridefully attempting to provide what we need for ourselves. Good luck with that. And this gets us to the heart of what it means to be radically dependent people, that we would be a people who look to God as our constant provider for every single one of our needs, that we would recognize that we do nothing on our own. It's not human ingenuity, but God's faithfulness, which has kept First Baptist in existence for 150 years. And I, I can tell you from personal experience, we've had plenty of people who've tried to mess it up, including myself. Okay, Any sinner in the room has probably tried to do that. Left to ourselves, we and our forebears would have killed it long ago, but God has provided. God has provided graciously in both good times and bad. So we accept the gifts that God has given us in dependence and humility. See, manna doesn't make sense. Sabbath doesn't make sense. In this world, in this In in the system of this world, trusting in God alone for provision of our needs never makes sense. But God isn't interested in making sense to the world. He's interested in forming a people who are actively, actively learning to trust him together. That's what being a radically dependent people is all about. And this year, as a church, we are together taking a step of faith, whether you know it or not, and walking in radical dependence as we trust God to provide this year in a unique way that doesn't necessarily make sense to all of us. And what I'm talking about specifically, and that's where I'm going to spend the rest of uh, my sermon this morning, what I'm talking about specifically is when I will be stepping away from my pastoral duties here at FBC to receive to receive a gift, to receive the gift of sabbatical for myself and for my family. This sabbatical is set to begin on May 1st, a little over 
three months from now and last for 16 weeks with my anticipated return at, on August 21st. And if you missed Dr. Noah's sermon from this last November 13th, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it because it masterfully covered a biblical case for both Sabbath and sabbatical. But with the rest of my time this morning, I'm, I'm going to pivot from our text in order to address, and I want you to hear this morning from my heart. The elders have spoken about the sabbatical a couple times, but I want you to hear from me. And, and I wanted to preface it with this idea of radical dependence, because I think that's what we're doing here, is we're, we're going to go into a season of radical dependence. But I want to answer this morning from my heart some of the more pressing questions that you might have about the sabbatical. And if you don't have any questions, this is where you can go to sleep. The first question I've heard, and the first question that came almost immediately to me from a couple people is simply this, are you doing okay? To me, are you doing okay? And I love this question because what it is is an expression of love and concern for my family and for me, and for that I'm grateful. But the question also naturally arises because we have had the habit in the past as a church, and I take ownership for this as an elder We've had the habit of granting sabbaticals as emergency measures. So, so we give them to, to pastors or ministers in response to a particular crisis or because someone's showing signs of burnout. So when we hear the word sabbatical, it sounds to us sometimes like we've just been told that our pastor's being put on hospice. And I remember the moment that I was told my dad was going on hospice. You know, what that, you know what that feels like. Something's wrong. There's an emergency. It's the end. So allow me to attempt to correct our thinking. The true nature of a sabbatical, what a sabbatical should be biblically, isn't rescue but renewal. It's not rescue. It's renewal. It, wasn't, it isn't meant to fix a problem but to sustain health. Like manna and Sabbath, a sabbatical in its truest sense, is a gift from God that's intended for our good. And the, the term sabbatical shouldn't be a red flag indicating mental and emotional or moral or physical crisis. It should be seen as serving to prevent such a crisis. Okay, so maybe an example will help. My, my dad, as I mentioned a moment ago, he passed away about a year and a half ago from complications arising from cardiopulmonary disease, and he had lived with, with lung stuff his entire life and, and heart issues for decades. But as I think about my dad, I am roughly the age now that he was when he had his first heart attack. So you can kind of imagine what's going through my mind right now as I'm thinking about my stage of life. But fast forward about 15 years when I had a pastor who had a heart attack when he was roughly the age I am now. Now, in response, he immediately began a serious regimen of exercise and eating healthy to try to prevent further episodes. Okay, so with those two examples in mind, and as I think about them, here's my thought. I don't really want to have a heart attack before I begin taking measures to prevent a heart attack. Does that make sense? And that's where the shift in our thinking ought to occur. Occur. A sabbatical isn't a measure intended to address the crisis on top of the crisis or after it's occurred. It's a gift intended to advocate for and champion health and resilience. So the short answer to the question is yes, I'm doing okay. My family's doing okay. 
Like everyone, we're tired. These past three years, and we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of COVID, these past three years have been weighty, they've been difficult, they've been stressful, but God, through it all, he's been faithful. He's sustained all of us. And I don't think I'm at the place of burnout. However, what I understand is that the spirit, there's a spiritual and emotional and mental and relational weight that comes with pastoral leadership. I know there's several of you in the room who have served in pastoral positions before, and to you guys, I know you know what I'm talking about. But it's hard to explain. It's hard to quantify. It's, it, I can't give you a chart of what it looks like. The weight can carry a toll that even in the midst of ministry is difficult to recognize it's, and heal from unless there are regular times like a sabbatical to step away for renewal and reconnection and counsel and perspective. So hear me. I'm receiving the gift of this sabbatical not because there's a crisis that needs to be fixed, although I know myself well enough to know that there are an infinite number of ways in which I need to be fixed. Okay? So, but there's not a specific crisis that that is necessitating this, but rather I receive it from you as an investment in me personally, in my family, and as a man and as a pastor, and then in my family's, in in our long-term health and longevity. My desire is to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better pastor And stepping away for an extended time of renewal and seeking to connect with and to hear from Jesus is the best way I can think to do this. For my good, for the good of my family, and for the building up of the church as well. Now the second question that I've heard probably more from more people, and and there's a tongue-in-cheek to it that people ask me, but it's this. Are you going to resign at the end of the sabbatical? And that's a valid question because there have been pastoral sabbaticals in the recent history of this church that have been precursors to resignations or or to ministry relocations. But the purpose of a sabbatical is not to go away and look for another job. That's not what I'm going to be doing for the 16 weeks. Because not only would that be immoral, (laughs) I think that would be wrong, but neither Carrier nor I believe that's where God is leading us right now. If we did believe that, if I thought that's where we were headed... I would resign today, but it's not. Now, with that being said, what a sabbatical does offer is a chance for extended, focused time to be with Jesus and to listen to him. And I don't want to enter that time with closed fists. I want to enter that time with open hands and an open heart to how he would speak and how he would lead. So no, I'm not planning on coming back on August 21st and handing in my resignation letter. But Carrie and I are planning to listen to and obey God's voice. And we hope that you all will just be prayerfully joining with us in that, doing the same thing right along with us. Because in the end, whatever he decides to do, his plan is best for us. It's the best thing that we can imagine for us. The next question you might be asking is, basically, who's going to do your job while you're on sabbatical? Or who's going to preach? Now, for many churches, this is a, a sabbatical is a hardship because, like smaller churches, rural churches uh, that don't have a lot of resources, uh, it requires maybe even a hiring pulpit supply, How, hiring somebody from the outside to come in for that time and preach and do the uh, fulfill the pastor's duties in his absence. However, this is gladly not the case 
here for us. Why? Because God has provided within our church a team of elders and other gifted teachers who will be competently, competently filling in the pulpit in my absence. And on top of that, the elders and our amazing church staff and your deacon team, other volunteers will take on other of my responsibilities while I'm away. And one of my main jobs over the next three and a half months is to purposely hand off those responsibilities, trusting then that I can step away and not worry that you will be cared for and shepherded. You will be in good hands. And the beauty of a time like this is that it gives the body of Christ, you heard it this morning from our new members, that, that they all have come and said, we want to use our gifts to serve the body of Christ. The beauty of a time like this is that it gives the body of Christ a unique opportunity to practice being the body of Christ. All of us in Christ have spiritual gifts that we should regularly be using and exercising to build up the church. And sometimes all that we need is the opportunity to do so. All that we need is the invitation. Here's your invitation. Perhaps this summer will be an opportunity for you to step up and serve the body with your gifts. Now some of you may hear about the sabbatical and be tempted to take a sabbatical yourself. To use this summer as an opportunity to take a break from church. Maybe that's because, and this is completely beyond me, I don't understand. Maybe it's because the only reason you come here is to hear me preach. But let me challenge you to take this sabbatical time to stop viewing church from a consumer's perspective. Because the church does not exist for you or for I to consume. It doesn't exist for your entertainment. It doesn't exist to satisfy your preferences. The church is a living organism. It is the body of the living, resurrected, and risen Christ. It is the family of the living God. It is a people who need each other. It is the temple on the Holy Spirit. So can I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, don't bail on your family. Don't bail on the church. Engage, press in, give, serve, love, sacrifice, take risks. Put yourself out there because these risks come with being an active member of God's family. And God will bless in that. So can I call you to engage while I'm away? And then finally in brief, I like, maybe not brief, I'm almost there. I'd like to, to address... What I take to be, I, I think, the most serious question that I can answer, and it's basically this. I've never had a sabbatical. Why should you get one? And this is a valid question. Honestly, the, the values and concerns behind this question aren't lost on me. I, I share them. I understand them. In fact, this is the question that has given me pause in even considering a sabbatical. Asking for a sabbatical, planning a sabbatical. This is the question, honestly, that keeps most pastors from ever taking a sabbatical. So allow me, though, to take this question back to Exodus 16. Okay, the text that we just looked at. And to answer it in that context. So when the Israelites saw the manna on the ground, they said, what is it? That's what the word manna means, what is it? Because it was something they had never experienced before. 
They didn't understand it. It wasn't the status quo. It wasn't the way that we've always done things. They complained because in Egypt they had all the food they wanted. We sat by our flesh pots and ate whatever we wanted. They complained because they had all the food they wanted, but now as they experience severe hunger, God's going to feed them strange bread on the ground every morning? Why? Because he wanted them to trust his provision to make them a different kind of people, a radically dependent people, a non-Egyptian kind of people, a counter-cultural kind of people. God was displeased then when some of the people said, basically, the Egyptians never had to eat like this. So why should we? Or take the gift of Sabbath as another example. They could have complained saying, we never had a Sabbath in Egypt where we worked seven days a week by the sweat of our brow, built pyramids or whatever. We never had a Sabbath in Egypt. Why should we take one now? You see, the practice of sabbatical along with the practice of Sabbath is thoroughly biblical but it's also completely counter-cultural. It's a God-given regular practice that puts us in a position to regularly trust God in the face of a secular world that doesn't trust Him at all and doesn't understand it when we live lives that trust Him. And this world is continuously tempting us away from trusting him, trying to overwork us, trying to get us to give those seven days a week and not rest in in the gift that God has given us. So in one sense, for you to gift my family with a sabbatical is an act of resistance against a culture that hates God. It's a certified rebellion against the world system and its ruler, the devil. It's an act of faith that presses us to trust in God to do his life-giving, miraculous work even when it doesn't make sense. It's an act that says we trust Jesus' words when he says things like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or when he says crazy things like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. These words don't make any sense to the world, but they are, and we believe them, as being life-giving truth. And we come to this table every Sunday morning. Maybe we come with questions or doubts. Maybe we come apathetically. And that's okay. But we come trusting that in some mysterious way, some way that we don't understand, God provides for every one of our needs. God provides in every one of our needs through the one who is the water of life, who is the bread of life, who is the vine, who feeds us and sustains us and provides for us. We come trusting that Christ is our life. And there's no other place to find life. So I invite you, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, to come to the table. As you take of the bread, as you take of the 
of the Jews, remember, this is Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you, because you couldn't do it yourself, because I couldn't do it myself, because we're all radically dependent on the grace of God to save us and sustain us and give us life. But before you do that, two more things I would like to say from my heart, and the first is thank you. Carrie and I both recognize that this sabbatical is a gift, that it takes something, it takes a sacrifice to give a gift. It's a, it's a gift of God's grace, but it's also a gift from you, a generous and loving congregation. It's an act of, I take it as an act of sacrifice and service from you to us, and we don't take that for granted. We are grateful for it, and so we thank you in advance. And finally, I know there are still questions, and I didn't answer every question this morning, but I'm very happy, and the elders are, they feel the same way. They're very happy to continue dialoguing and answering any questions that you might have about this sabbatical. Um, some questions we've answered face-to-face. Others, others kind of sift their way through the grapevine to us. We go, well, there's concerns and questions out there, but nobody's come and talked to us. And I would encourage you to refrain from gossip and go to the source. If you have questions, if you have valid concerns, come and talk to us. We're welcome. We want to dialogue. We're not going to beat you over the head with the Bible or lock you in a room or tell you you can't come back. We're going to have dialogue and conversation and discussion, and um, we love you. Um, I love you, and we're grateful. And um, Yeah, that's about all I have to say is thank you. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning knowing that you are a good father who gives good gifts and only good gifts. And so we thank you for those gifts. We thank you for constantly reminding us of our desperate need for you, our radical dependence on you. Even when we don't understand it, even when we don't see it, even when we live our lives like we're providing for ourselves, God, would you open our eyes? Would you open our eyes and help us to understand that, that every day's bread is a gift of, of you? from you, and that God rest itself and renewal is a gift from you. We can't create it on our own. We can't make it on our own. And so, Lord, I do pray that as we, as we live as a people, as, we, as you shape us into a people like you shaped Israel, that we would live each day reaching out and accepting the gifts that you give us and be content with them. Father, we pray that as we go through various trials that we would be grateful and praise you because you are forming in us steadfastness and character and, and holiness and Christ-likeness. And this morning as we come and as we remember the gift of your son crucified for our salvation, Lord, we look to you again for our spiritual needs, for our physical needs, but we look to you, Jesus, as the bread of life, the water of life, sustenance that we need, the vine that we must be connected to. We praise you and we long to abide in you and to know you even more deeply as we learn to trust in your gracious and good provision. Pray all this in your name and for your glory. Amen.